Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in, your, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now our text for this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is God's holy word. May bless it to us as we meditate upon it this morning. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, we know, has been reminding us of who we are. He's been telling us about our new identity in the Lord Jesus. And, and not only that, but he's begun to spell out what are some of the, the implications of this very thing. If, if you belong to Christ, we've seen, then you're going to mortify your sin. You're going to, to put to death that, that earthly dimension of yourselves, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And if you belong to Christ, you're not only going to, to mortify your sin, but you're also going to, to mirror your Savior. You're going to, to put on a, a compassionate heart and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If, if you belong to Christ, you're going to bear with one another. 
And you're going to forgive one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you belong to Christ, you're going to to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do in word or in deed, you're going to do with thanksgiving in your heart to God. You're going to do these things because you've been made into something new. You're going to do these things because you have been raised with Christ and because your life is now hidden with Christ and God, and so much so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also are going to appear with Him in glory. And so we've seen this this grammar of the gospel, how Paul has been been grounding these great imperatives for the Christian life in the great indicatives of, of what God has done, of what God has said concerning us. But thus far, Paul has spoken rather generally In verses 1 to 17, you could say he's given us some of the basic principles that that undergird the Christian life. But in verses 18 and following, Paul gets down to the brass tacks, doesn't he? One pastor has referred to this next section in Paul's letter as being the, the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. Because it's really here in verses 18 and following that that the principles of verses 1 to 17 begin to to take shape in our lives in a way that those around us can actually see. St. Clair Ferguson called this section of Paul's letter the the acid test that, that proves whether or not the gospel of Christ has really transformed and, and taken hold of a person's life. And so in these verses, the Spirit is really pressing us with the question, has the gospel transformed the way in which you relate to one another? Are the, are the gospel dynamics of verses 1 to 17 at work in your marriage? Are these gospel dynamics at work in your home life? Are they at work in, in your work life? This, says Ferguson, is really where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? This is where it becomes clear whether or not the gospel has really transformed my life. To strangers, he says, the truth may not be immediately evident, but to your wife and to your husband, to your children and to your parents, to your co-workers, the real you is going to come out, and they're going to be able to see whether or not your life really is a testimony to the reality that you are in the Lord Jesus. To be sure, we come this morning to a countercultural text, don't we? To say that, that wives should submit to their own husbands as is fitting in the Lord is not a very politically correct thing to say. But in our society where we've seen the breakdown of the family, where, where marriage has become nothing more than a, than a temporary avenue to personal happiness, it would seem, we have to recognize this morning that God's Word is timeless. The apostle's instruction to husbands and wives is timeless. His words are as relevant for us today as they ever have been. And so whether we are married or unmarried, whether we have a spouse or desire a spouse, the Spirit calls us to take Paul's words here to heart. If not for our own sake, then for the world's sake, as as part of our witness to the world, that the gospel of Christ really does make all the difference. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul is is going to urge us to to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And this is certainly one of the ways in which we can do that. We can do that 
in our marriages. We can bear witness to the gospel of Christ in our home life. Your relationship with Christ must have an impact on your relationships with one another. This is what Paul is really pressing home in this section, verses 18 to 4, verse 1. Your relationship with Christ must have an impact on your relationship with one another. And here in verses 18 and following, 18 and 19, Paul begins with what is perhaps the most fundamental relationship there is, the relationship between a husband and his wife. And you see, he starts with husbands and wives rather than with parents and children because it's the relationship between the husband and the wife that, that sets the tone for the home. It's, it's the relationship between the husband and the wife that instills the, the spirit of love and harmony in the family. As Elizabeth Elliot once said, the greatest good that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. And the greatest good that a mother can do for her children is to love their father. And here in verses 18 and 19, Paul is answering the question, well, what does that look like? How should husbands and wives relate to one another now that they've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus? What does What does having a new identity in Christ, what does that have to do with being a wife? What does having a new identity in Christ have to do with with being a husband? In the first place, Paul speaks to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As I said before, to our 21st century ears, these words are radically countercultural. To our Western world, these words are no doubt regard as being repressive and misogynistic. But what we have to recognize this morning is that Paul's words here in verses 18 and 19 are no more countercultural today than they were when, when Paul originally wrote them. They're just countercultural today for the exact opposite reasons. Because when Paul was originally writing to the Colossians, wives had no real status or standing in society at all. And in Greco-Roman society, wives were typically regarded as being merely the possessions of their husbands. In the Greco-Roman world, a respectable woman lived a life of seclusion. She did not go out on her own. She did not go to the marketplace on her own. In most instances, she did not even eat meals with the men of the home. And from the wife, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity. But her husband, on the other hand, he could do whatever he pleased. The husband could go, to, could, could go out whenever he wanted to go out. He could have as, as many extramarital relations as he wanted. And he could do so without the stigma or shame of society. In the Greco-Roman world in which the Apostle Paul was ministering, all the privileges belonged to husbands and all the duties belonged to the wife. And so far from demeaning the status of wives, Paul is radically elevating their status according to God's original design. For Paul, as an ambassador of Christ, to, to address wives equally with their husbands was, was radically new. And for Paul to say to husbands that husbands likewise have a duty to their wives to, to love them and, and to not be harsh with them was likewise radically new. And so far from advocating a view of marriage that's repressive for women, Paul is actually seeking to to transform the whole dynamic of that relationship since both 
husband and wife were now called to recognize that they were both under the Lord Jesus as equals, as God's sons and daughters, as, as co-heirs of the grace of life, as the Apostle Peter says. Perhaps the best commentary on what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3 can be found in what Paul himself says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5. You may want to, to turn there if you have your Bibles open. As I've said a few times before, Colossians and Ephesians are, are often referred to as being Paul's twin letters because they, they follow a similar structure and they cover similar themes and ideas. And that's certainly the case when you compare Colossians 3 verse 1 to 4 verse 1 to Ephesians 4 17 to 6 verse 9. Because not only does each section begin by talking about this call to, to put off the old man and to, and to put on the new man, but in each section Paul seeks to apply those concepts more particularly to these relationships of husbands and wives, to parents and children, to slaves and masters. And what Paul says in Ephesians 5.22 is parallel to what he says here in Colossians 3.18. In Ephesians 5.22 he says, Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. But Paul's further explanation in verses 22 to 20, 23 to 24 helps us to see something of the basis for that command. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband, it should submit in everything to their husbands. Now the word that Paul uses here for submission in these two passages often used as a, as a military word. It's a word that can otherwise be, be used to describe the submission that a soldier owes to his superior officer in order that all things might be done in good order in military life. And so as such, it's not a word that speaks to, to the essence of a person. It's not a word that, that suggests that wives are somehow lesser than their husbands. But when Paul says that a wife is to submit herself to her husband, he's speaking to her role. He's speaking to, to the disposition that she ought to have toward her husband for Christ's sake. As one pastor defines it, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it out according to her gifts. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it out according to her gifts. And perhaps in that definition you can hear echoes from the first two chapters of Genesis. Because when God made the man in his own image, what did God say? He said, it is not good that man should be alone. So what did God do? He said, I will make a helper fit for him to, to assist him. And that's exactly what God did. He took a rib from man's side, and he formed a helper fit for him. Matthew Henry once put it quite beautifully when he said that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. She wasn't made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But she was made out of his side to be an equal with him. She was made from a rib under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. She was a helper fit for him, to, 
to assist him in ruling over creation. This was God's good design from the very beginning. From the very beginning, it was the husband's calling to lead, and it was the wife's calling to assist according to God's good design for them and for the world. And so as the husband led his wife, and as the wife assisted her husband, both husband and wife were giving expression to their submission to the Lord. But it was this divinely established authority structure that Satan tried to usurp, isn't it? And the problem in Genesis 3 is not only that Adam disobeyed God, but the problem was also that Satan was, was trying to, to usurp and turn God's proper order for the world upside down. When Satan entered in, Adam ought to have given a loving lead, and Eve ought to have submitted herself to that lead, and together they ought to have overruled that unruly serpent. But instead, the serpent spoke to Eve, and Eve listened to the serpent rather than to her husband. And, and Adam took his cue from his wife when he ought to have led his wife. He ought to have said, no, God, God has said we, we may not eat of that tree. And it all ended in tears, didn't it? From then on, the marriage relationship became strained as the, as the brokenness of sin entered into the world. But in God's amazing grace, the relationship that became distorted in the fall is restored in the gospel pattern for marriage. And this is Paul's aim here when he says that wives are to submit to their own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. When he says that wives are to submit to their husbands even as the church submits herself to Christ. Paul anchors this command not only in, in creation, calling the husband the head of the wife, but also in redemption in the church's submission to the Lord Jesus. I've already noted that what it means in the first place then is that a wife is to honor and affirm her husband's leadership to help him carry it out according to her gifts, which is simply to say that a wife's submission to her husband it must not only be an external show of the hands, but it ought to be an internal act of the heart. The Christian wife is here called to submit to her husband, not because her husband is, is more intelligent than her or more spiritual than her, but because she's convicted of the fact that God has ordained it to be so. The Christian wife acknowledges in her heart, she affirms in her mind that God has made her husband to be her head. And her actions as his wife then flow from that internal conviction and commitment. Notice that Paul also adds the qualification at the end of verse 18, that wives are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. By which he means only to say that this submission is according to God's good design, but that this submission also has certain limits. A husband's authority, Paul is saying, is not an absolute authority. But the husband's authority is itself subject to God's authority, which is to say that a wife's submission to her husband is not to be contrived as, as slavery to her husband. That the wife must submit herself to her husband doesn't mean that the wife must do whatever her, her husband asks her to do. No matter what, the, the Christian wife isn't a, a slave to her husband. She's not a, a menial servant or a doormat to her husband. 
If her husband wants her to, to aid in sin, she must obey God rather than men. Moreover, a wife's submission to her husband doesn't mean that she doesn't have a voice in the marital relationship. Husbands ought to welcome their wives' opinions as well as their criticisms. They ought to embrace the assistance of their wives and, and recognize that God has, has given them a wife to assist them, to, to help to sanctify them, to challenge them, to encourage them, to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, as we'll see in just a few moments, Paul, Paul makes very clear that the husband is to reflect Christ to his wife. But before we get to that, we also need to recognize this morning that even in her submission, the wife is also a reflection of Christ to her husband. As one pastor has put it, the words, as is fitting in the Lord, causes Christian wives and women to look away from themselves to what they have become in Christ. And more particular, these words, as is fitting in the Lord, summons them to consider how Christ becoming our Savior involved a submission of monumental proportions how he was not forced into it, but how he willingly and voluntarily put himself at the Father's disposal, knowing that it was for the glory of God and for the ultimate good of his people. In other words, wives, Jesus is the template of your submission. The wife says another pastor is imitating her Savior in the most personal of ways, Placing herself under someone else's authority, bending her will to the will of someone else in submission for the duration of her life in order to seek his will and not her own. And in so doing, she reflects the person and character of Christ to the world as she exudes that gentle and quiet spirit as the Apostle Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. As she exudes that gentle and quiet spirit to her husband, she's exuding the beautiful spirit of her Savior, who did not count equality with the Father, something to be grasped, but emptied himself in submission to the Father. To be sure, society, we know, deemed Christ's humble submission to be lowly and pathetic. The world counted the cross folly, that submission to the Father. But what did God say to the Lord Jesus when Christ yoked himself to his earthly ministry, that ministry of, of submission when he was baptized. What did God say? He said, this, look, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I tell you, wives, this morning that when God sees your gentle and quiet spirit, when he sees your submission to your husbands, do you know that God says the exact same thing? Look at these, my daughters. These are my beloved daughters in whom I am well pleased. What does Paul say to husbands in the second place? To husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, perhaps the best commentary on what Paul is saying here can be found, again, in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul clearly anchors the husband's love for his wife in Christ's love for the church. Listen to what Paul says at verse 25 of chapter 5 in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy without blemish. In the same way, says Paul, husbands should love their wives as their own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no, one ever, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Or take the words to heart of what the Apostle Peter says. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As I said before, in a world where husbands regarded their wives as property, Paul's words here also are radically new. Because Christian husbands are here commanded to love their wives, not merely with with an erotic love, as some might have expected, but in the Greek, with, with an agape love, which is a, a love that involves an unceasing care and, and loving service for the wife's entire well-being. In each of these passages, Colossians 3, 19, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, the Lord Jesus is, is calling husbands to love their wives with a love that is selfless, sympathetic, and sacrificial. When Paul says negatively that husbands ought not to be harsh with their wives, he's saying positively that husbands are to exercise a constant Christ-like consideration of their wives. They are to exude a benevolent sympathy as they live with their wives in an understanding way even as Christ lived with us when he sojourned on the earth. Christ's love, we know, was was incarnational to the fullest possible sense. He loved us more than he loved his own body. He took upon himself our flesh and blood in order that he might understand our world, in order that he might understand our weakness and our frailty. In this way, Hebrews says, he became that perfect, sympathetic Savior, who understood us, who who understood our world. And this, husbands, is to be your example. Consider just how intimately the Lord Jesus knows his bride. Consider how intimately Christ knows the church. Christ knows all of her struggles. He knows all of the sins that she wrestles with. He knows all the doubts that despair her. And by his word and spirit, what does Christ do? Christ, as the faithful husband, the tender husband, he he reminds her again and again of just how much he loves and cherishes her as his beautiful bride. And husbands, this is what God calls you to do in a very unique way with your wives. Listen again to the language, the intimate language that Paul uses in Ephesians 5. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Nowhere does Paul describe the ministry to Titus or to Timothy as the washing of water with the word. That's intimate language that he uses here for husbands because no one besides Christ knows your wives better than you do. No one knows your wife as intimately as you do. And so you need to encourage your wife with the word in a way that is specifically suited to her and to her needs. What you say doesn't have to be profound, doesn't have to be groundbreaking. You don't have to prepare a, a sermon for your wife. But what you say just has to be true from God's Word. You need to understand your wives, live with them in an understanding way. Understand their situation, their status, the way the world perceives them compared to the way the world perceives you. I can look out in the congregation this morning and see a number of of very successful men, successful men who have successful businesses, and that's a good thing. That's a great thing. The Lord has, has blessed our congregation greatly, and the world admires you men. They see your successful businesses, and the world admires you. But do you recognize that it's not so for most of your wives, especially if, if your wives, for the most part, are at home with the children? They don't have the world's admiration. They have the world's ridicule. They see wives staying at home, raising children in the Lord, and the world says that what they're doing is foolish. The world says that their sacrifice isn't worth it. Brothers, I can only remind them that the world is wrong every so often. Only as I come to passages like this on marriage can I say, dear sisters, the world is wrong. And God esteems your submission highly. I can only say that every so often. And so, brothers, the burden is on you to remind them, to understand them, to live with them in an understanding way, not to be harsh with them. The burden is on you to say to them often, I know that the world mocks you and ridicules you, but God doesn't. Thank you. Thank you for the sacrifices that you've made so that I can have a successful career that the world admires. You see, even the authority of a husband that's been entrusted to him by the Lord is to reflect the kindness and gentleness of Jesus, the husband and head of the church. It's true, husbands, that God has given you a crown, a crown to rule the home. But in the Lord Jesus, the crown that God has given you is a crown of thorns. It's a crown of thorns that, that summons you, that obliges you 
to give of yourself, all of yourself, to your wife, just as Christ did for the church. It's a kind of thorns that summons you to be more concerned with her than you are with yourself. To put her needs and her wants before your own. It should be a joy for your wives to submit to you. Just as it should be a joy for us believers to submit to the Lord Jesus because his yoke is easy and his, and his burden is light. The crown that God has given to you husbands is a crown of thorns. It obliges you, it summons you to love your wives selflessly, sympathetically, and sacrificially, even as Christ loves us selflessly, sympathetically, and sacrificially. In conclusion, we've seen two radical calls this morning. In these two ways, that which is otherwise hidden to the world, Paul is saying, is made Manifest as a wife submits herself to her husband, and as a husband loves his wife, their identity in Christ is made manifest to the world, and it bears a, a powerful witness to the world as, as the world sees the gentle spirit of Christ in the wife, and as the world sees the sacrificial love of Christ in a husband. May God Grant us as husbands and wives the grace to live in light of these words. And and may he grant us repentance where we've fallen short of them. For with these words, the Lord sets before us the way to blessing and joy. The way to, to happiness in the home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we've heard a countercultural word. This word from Paul concerning wives and husbands. And yet, Father, we pray that by your Spirit we would embrace these words and live in light of them fully. Father, we pray that all the wives in our congregation would indeed reflect the Lord Jesus to their husbands and to the world. May they reflect Jesus' gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight was very precious. And may the world see the glory of Christ's submission to the Father and the submission of our wives to their husbands. And Father, we pray also for our husbands. Father, we pray that the world would see in our husbands the sacrificial, selfless, and sympathetic love of the Lord Jesus as they seek to live with their wives in an understanding way, never being harsh with them. Father, we pray that as we live in light of Paul's words, we would indeed bear witness to the world, that they would be drawn to Christ and all his beauty, that they would come to him, the great husband of the church, and be washed in him and cleansed, that we all together with the elect of all places and all ages might 
indeed stand before you in white garments without the stain or wrinkle of sin. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.